We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Turn to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 13. I, in Dallas Seminary, when I was there, we had a fellow named J. Dwight Pentecost, and he once made a statement that prophecy was in every book of the Bible, and very particularly in every single book of the New Testament, and that it was never there just to titillate your ears about things of the future. It was there for a purpose, and it was a moral purpose. It was there to change your life. And I had heard that, and I thought back through it in my giant brain, okay, like Jethro Bodine. I began just kind of reviewing the New Testament epistles, and you know, he was exactly right. In every single epistle, in every single gospel, obviously in the book of Revelation, that there is something about the second coming of Christ or the tribulation, or the Antichrist, or the world to come that is there. The Bible is a faraway book for faraway fellers. It's an amazing book. You stand in the middle at the cross, and you look back at Genesis at where we came from. Then you look around you in the epistles at what we're supposed to be doing now. And then you look in the future at Revelation as to what's coming. You can stand on one point of your Bible and see the entirety of the universe and of human history from the beginning to the end. Isn't that amazing? No other book even comes close to even trying to say that. And so, watch what Jesus has to say. After teaching about uh, the tribulation period, in verse 28 through verse 30, he says, let me give you uh, an illustration. He said, learn the parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and put forth its leaves you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things, context, the tribulation period, you recognize that he is right at the door. In other words, verse 30, this generation, meaning the generation that sees these signs of the tribulation, they will not pass away until all these things take place. When you see the start of these events, the end of these events is seven years away. It's not like, Noah, I'm going to flood the world when? In a hundred years. Uh, Moses, someday someone's going to come just like you and he's going to lead my people and lay his life down like you. When's that time going to come? 1,400 years. Uh, Malachi, the forerunner's going to come. Really, when? 400 years. Garden of Eden, the seed of woman will crush the serpent's head. When's that going to happen? In about 40 centuries. And so it's not like that kind of prophecy. The generation will not pass away, meaning the generation that sees these before I come. Now, let me make sure you understand something. When he talks about you, he's talking to the disciples as representatives, not of Christians, but as representatives of what they are as believing remnant of Israel. And what is true of those Jews 
uh, here is going to be true of that remnant of the last days. That's why when you read the book of Revelation, from 6 on, the tribulation begins, you never see the word church. You see Israel. And so this is spoken to that nation of Israel. Let me ask you, is Israel that important before God that he can speak to them here and then in the future days? Yes, they are. They are the people of God. And so, this generation that sees this, you've got seven years, and he's coming. You and I will not be here, because this cannot even begin until the restrainer is taken out of the way. You and I have got to be gone. If you'd like to take this out, cut it out, put it on your front door, and just write a note above it that says, told you so, okay? Then the paper boy can come to faith. Okay. And so in verse 31, he's going to tell you about five different truths that you need to know about, about prophecy. Let me stop and say this. You notice the very last line in verse 37? What I say to you, I say to, what's it say? All. There are truths that are what are called abiding truths, that what is true of the Jew in the last day is true of us that are in the last days before the tribulation, and that's the church age. You and I are told to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. That's the rapture. So uh, there's a lot, a lot of verses about us looking for the coming of Christ for his church. This is the coming of Christ with his church to the end, to Israel. There are truths. What is true for them will be true for us. So you don't have to try to, to uh, nitpick too much. This is helpful for us. In verse 31, he says, number one, you need to realize that what I'm telling you about what has not happened is, as, is more certain than the world that you're standing on. Heaven and earth will pass away. Do you all believe that? It will. Revelation chapter 21, 22, I saw new heavens and a new earth. It's going to pass away, but my words will not. The grass withers, the flower fades, the beauty of their appearance is destroyed, but the word of the Lord abides forever. And so he says, take this to the bank. It's why the apostle Paul would say, it is for this that we labor and agonize because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. He said, I believe that God can save us, that he can return and take us to glory, and that is why we labor and we strive, because we believe this. I know that all of my old non-Christian days, I was looking for something to sell out to. I just couldn't find anything. No kind of pleasure, no kind of you know, how many of you guys my age remember the posters of Che Guevara, you know, and uh, Chairman Mao and of Lenin? Remember Lenin's face? Not John Lenin, but Vladimir. And everybody was following after the new stuff. I said, nah, that's not going to work. I couldn't find anything. There was no wine, no women, no song that would give me anything. I heard the gospel that the eternal God had become a man, had become a criminal, had become a sacrifice, that I could be declared righteous, that he could take me to glory forever. And I said, that is worth my life. 
that's worth failing at because it's true. It was Woodrow Wilson who once said it's far better to fail in a cause today that will ultimately succeed than to succeed today in a cause that will ultimately dissipate. And so he says, my words will not pass away. And then he says, of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son. You remember they asked Jesus, the disciples, in Acts 1, Lord, is it it now you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said, that's not for you to know. The time fixed by the Father's authority. It's fixed, but I'm not going to tell you. You're going to have to always be ready. And so, no one knows. Jesus, in his kenosis, the laying aside of his privilege during his earthly ministry, was kept from that knowledge. Now, he knows. Uh, there were things that he could do as God that during his earthly ministry were voluntarily laid aside so he could be just like you and I. And so he says, not even the Son knows, but the Father alone. So in verse 33, here is your next thing. Be ready. Take heed. Keep on the alert. For you don't know when the appointed time will come. There is a word that's used in verse 33, the word alert, and it's a word that is used about taking an animal captive in a, in a trap, that he's not aware of what's happening till all of a sudden it's on him, now it's too late. It's usually used as the word uh, asleep. Don't be insensible to what's happening. Be awake, be ready, be wary. And the other word that he uses in verse 35, at the end of verse 34 and verse 37, alert, is the word Gregorio that means to watch. We get the word Gregory out of it. As a matter of fact, a lot of uh, Middle Ages popes during the uh, middle, middle Age, the Dark Age, as it were, would name themselves Gregory I or Gregory VII because they wanted to be known as those who were watching, always looking over their flock. It was kind of a complimentary name to be called Gregory. And so, be ready, be on the alert. Jonathan Edwards wrote a number of resolutions when he was a young boy, and one of them was he would never spend a day as though it were not and could not be the last day of his life. He would live every day like the last day of his life. That's pretty wise, isn't it? He said that when he was 12. And that was his first year at Yale. So let's move on. And so he's always ready. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, just in a broader way, took his two twin sons out to a graveyard. And he showed them the places where children had died. And he said to his two boys, just because you are a Christian does not mean that you can't die. And just because you are young does not mean that you cannot die. And he said, you must live every day as though that day you will face your king. That's to a couple of little boys. We had a fellow at Denton Bible years ago. How many of you remember Allie Miller? Anybody? Allie Miller, we named our tape center 
back there after him. Allie Miller was a, his brother, Arky. Arky, are you here? Are you dead, Arky? Okay, I guess he's home. Uh, Arky started bringing Allie to our Bible study. And Allie just took off serving God. And the reason was because of what he called the second greatest blessing of his life. He said his first greatest blessing was Christ. His second greatest blessing was prostate cancer. And by the time they found it, it had metastasized. And there was, you could chemo it, you could radiate it, you could do what you wanted to, but it was there. And he said, what's my chance? They said, you might slow it, but you've got usually seven years, six to seven. And so Allie first cried, and then he said, okay, I've got this to pour my life into. And so he began coming to our Bible study, and then he began bringing people to the Bible study. And then, as he brought them to the Bible study, uh, he would say, if you'll just come once, you don't have to come anymore. But he felt if he could get them there once, that they would listen. And then he would berate them and dog them until they would come just to shut him up. And uh, he began giving away whatever he had, and he began looking at what he could do to serve God. He could not read well. He had chronic dyslexia. I used to kid him when he got married that he said, do I? I said, no, I, said, I do. But we took a picture before he died of the guys he had brought to that study, and there were 25 guys that he had brought there. Uh, how many of you remember an old guy lived around here named Rex Cobble? Yeah. Allie led him to Christ. He, Rex had gone to prison, and he got out of prison, and Allie found him over at a Kroger's and said, there's a guy I want you to meet. And so we got together over at Bagheri's or whatever that place is called. And he said to him, while he's eating his linguine, he said, Tommy, this is Rex, and he doesn't know Christ, and he's going to hell. You need to talk to him. <laughs> and I sensed an opening for the gospel right there. <laughs> and I baptized Rex. Rex got saved. And I did Rex's funeral, me and Dale Robertson. Who remembers Dale Robertson? What is this show? Wells Fargo. Yeah, me and... Huh? Jubilee? You're kidding. Come on up here. Let's visit about that, buddy. <laughs> buddy's one of my people. Okay. And so he found out also, we did a series called Love Song, the story of the Song of Solomon. Many of you have children that were named after that series that are here. But the thing just, Song of Solomon took off. It went herbal. It went fungal. <laughs> What do you call it? Viral. It went viral. <laughs> went every place. And Allie made it his job to go turn out tapes and send them out. So he had his own Song of Solomon, you know, underground deal that he would send them out. And we named that tape center 
the Allie Miller Memorial Tape Center. Uh, Tommy Teague, one of our elders, his son Elliot married uh, Allie's granddaughter, Courtney, that he doted over that she would come to know the Lord. Now she's married to this navigator missionary. And so that's just the way that he was. He was zealous. And the reason he was is because he knew he only had maybe 72 to 84 months. That's all he had. And he died right on time at six years. But he would say that. He said, the greatest thing happened to me other than Christ was prostate cancer. He said, prostate cancer saved me from being a nominal Christian to being committed. He said, they were the best six years of my life. Because he knew it's coming. It's coming. And that's what Christ says. You know it's coming. When I was a young guy, I went to a campus crusade uh, a Christmas deal called Senior Panic. And they invited college seniors. What are you going to do with your life? And a guy got up and he said, take a piece of paper, all right? Write down your goals. I'm writing down my goals like a blonde. I'm not going to look like this. Yeah. And then he said, you got them down? Got them. Turn the paper over. Now, you know Christ is coming back in 18 months. Now, what are your goals? Preach the gospel to every living creature. <laughs> oh, I was holy now. And the guy said, if the back of that sheet is different from the front of that sheet, you need to think seriously about what you're doing and why you're doing it. Because we're to live in the light of the coming. We are to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. We're looking and so, he says, be ready, be ready. And in verse 34, he says, let me give you an illustration. Like a man who's on a journey, that's Christ who leaves, leaving his house, his people, he put his slaves in context, these leaders and those of the nation of Israel that will lead, he's put his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task. So, number three, you have an assigned job. You have what Paul called a course. It's a Greek word that means to run something. I do not consider my life as of, as of any account, but that I might complete the course that was laid out for me by the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the grace of God. That's my job, is to take it to the four corners. Uh, run with endurance. The race set before us, same root word. Um, the last chapter of his life, 2 Timothy 4, the time of my departure has come. The word departure is the word there, analusis. We get the word analytical. Luo means to loose. Ana means to loose away. And it was a word used for tying up a ship and then letting it go. And the ship goes off to the horizon. And that's the word he used. The time of my departure has come. I'm about to go home. I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. And I have finished the course. God gave me X amount of time. And I went till the end of doing what I should do. And so you have a job 
to do. If you'll look also in verse 34, assigning to each one his task and commanded the doorkeeper to keep on the alert because there's going to be an accounting. These men are considered doorkeepers. You're going to get charged because you know that I'm coming. So you have to do your job. And I may appear in verse 34 or 35 uh, in the evening or a little later at midnight or a little later at about 3 a.m. when the rooster crows or in the morning and the sun pops up. I'm coming at a time that you're not going to be ready for it. So be ready, always living in the light of his coming. Uh, for us, that is called, are y'all familiar with the most un, unfamiliar of all Christological doctrines? That's called the Bema, the judgment seat. We shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each of us may be recompensed for the deeds which we did in the body, whether good or bad. It says in Revelation 19, when we come, we are clothed in white linen, bright and clean, and the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. One of the most oft-used verses in all the Bible is, God shall judge each according to his deeds. Now, are we going to be judged for our salvation by our deeds? No. Our reward, our recompense each one shall receive his own recompense from God, whether slave or free, Ephesians 6. Is there going to be a recognition of what we did, quote, in the body? What did you do in that body in the years that you had? There will be the Bema. A Bema is a term of an athletic event of the, uh, well, they were called the Isthmian Games, the Corinthian Games, the Athenian Games. Uh, the Greeks developed them. Uh, the modern Olympic Games started in the late 1800s. And so they would do the games and they had to be discerning on wasting their time watching people compete that shouldn't have been out there. What we have are relegated, you know, district by district, regional, you, and then you get to the Olympic trials. What they did, they didn't have these. They just took a good look at you and went, meh, you're out. But then if, you, if they, you look like a guy that could do it, they'd say, all right, but you have to go before uh, the judges. Raise your right hand. And you had to make an oath by Zeus. And it was that you would not be a glutton. You would not be a wine bibber. You would not visit the prostitution houses. You would train always. Up to this event, you would train because we got to know we're going to get the best guys out there. So they would get the said number of guys and they would look over them. And so they say, you're the guys. And they would have to swear before Zeus that they would not violate the rules. And if they won that event, before they gave them that crown, which was celery, yeah, they would give them the wreath. They had to stand before the judgment seat, the bema knowing that Zeus was looking at him. Don't write me. Okay. And you had to raise your right hand and swear, give the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you, Zeus. You did not drink. You did not chase. You did not gluttonize. You did not do any of these things. All right. 
And if you pass the Bema, they gave you the prize. Paul takes that term and uses it on about three occasions for us. It's not for salvation. It's for your garment. I'll recompense you with your glory. Dwight Pentecost, uh, I remember saying from 1 Corinthians 15, each star has its glory. One this glory, one that glory. In the same way, there are different glories of different bodies, the resurrection body and an earthly body. And some have felt that this sun, moon, star differentiation was Paul's reference to the resurrection body, that there would be a difference in glory depending on the deeds of the saints. Just like you can wear a broadcloth shirt or a 80-point pinpoint Oxford shirt, or you can wear a 100-point Oxford shirt. You all know what I'm talking about? You don't because you're poor. Okay. And if you get like a 110-pinpoint shirt, it's like a suit of armor. But it's, it's got so much fabric that if you starch it, it's bulletproof. All right. And it shines. Okay. And so that there will be, God will just take our lives. There. And so he doesn't go into it how he's going to do it. But we are girded in the righteous deeds of the saints. And Dr. Pentecost thought that in the eternal city, all of us will be like lights on a chandelier. Will you be a 60-watt saint or a 100-watt saint? that it will be a just recompense. And uh, Paul said, a uh, athlete does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. Did you obey your Bible in this? Yes, okay. Did you honor me in this? Did you speak with the tongues of men and of angels but had not love? It accomplishes nothing. And so God will look at the nature of our lives. And he doesn't go into a great length on it. it. It leaves that in the dark. All we know is that I will have an accounting before God. He commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Don't go to sleep on me because I'm going to call you to account for the life that I gave you. Uh, what's something else to say about this? Who way to look at this. The greatest home run hitter in the history of baseball. Who is it? Barry Bonds. Used to be Babe Ruth, then it was Hank Aaron. It's Barry Bonds. Will Barry Bonds get into the Hall of Fame? No. He broke the rules. You can't take performance enhancing drugs. And he did. At best, he'll get in with an asterisk. Uh, the best pitcher statistically that's ever lived won the Cy Young Award seven times. To get up to the majors is unheard of. To win the Cy Young is unheard of. Seven times with three teams is unheard of. Who are we talking about? Roger Clemens from the University of Texas. And uh, is he going to get in the Hall of Fame? 
Oh, yeah, sorry, Steve. No, he's not going to get in the Hall of Fame. Why? Performance-enhancing drugs. You think drugs help a hitter in hitting? Not near as much as they help a pitcher in pitching. If you pitch a full game, you've got five days to recover. If you're on steroids, you've got three days, and you're back at it, and you can pitch long. Turned up with steroids. The best pitcher of all time will not get in the Hall of Fame. The best home run hitter of all time will not get in the Hall of Fame because they couldn't pass the Bama. Who's the best for average hitter of all time? This guy hit like 372 and he played till he was 42 years old. You ever heard of Ty Cobb? He was the best. If you hit 370-something, I think it's, I know y'all are Googling me right now, so. But if you hit 370, you're a freak. He hit over 400 three times. He averaged, I think it was 370. He was unbelievable. Matter of fact, there's an old story that they asked Yogi Berra one time. They said, Yogi, you think that Cobb would be as good a player today as he was then with new guys? Yogi said, oh, yeah. I think he'd be good. You think he could hit 400? He said, no, I think he could hit right at three, though, every time he played. He said, wait a minute. I thought you said that he could be as good now as he was then. He said, well, you got to remember, he'd be 90 years old. <laughs> True story. Old 90-year-old guy. <laughs> uh, Will Pete Rose... Pete Rose beat him. Will Pete Rose get in the Hall of Fame? He will not. Because he did what's worse than uh, steroids. He bet on baseball. That's what keeps baseball from becoming professional wrestling, <laughs> is you can't bet on it. And so the best home run hitter, the best hitter, the best pitcher of all time will not get in because they didn't keep the rules. And so he says, your accounting is coming. And in verse 35, or at the end of verse 36, in case he shouldn't come suddenly and find you asleep, don't get lulled to sleep. It's easy to do when there's quiet outside, when you don't see him coming, and you just get lulled in the... Uh, Narnia Chronicles, the white witch gets her subjects by playing on a lute and she strums it. Strum, 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 strum. She just gets you on her wavelength and makes you inert to everything around you. And the world can do that to you. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Don't go to sleep. Uh, my grief is when I see guys from the 80s, 70s that used to be soul winners, and I see them now, and they have just flattened out, and they speak of their committed days as the good old days. They got lulled to sleep by money, by pleasure, by positions, by kids, by grandkids, and pretty soon they just went to sleep. We are to stay awake. 
Cornelius Van Til, one of my heroes in the faith. He retired from teaching at Princeton for I don't know how long he did in Romans and Systematic. And then he went to Florida, where all people go to die. He went to Florida. And as retired, he would walk over to a Catholic retirement center and just sit down and drink coffee with them and start talking with them about eternity. And that's how he finished out his life, talking over coffee with old guys. Bill Bright contracted pulmonary fibrosis. He couldn't speak, couldn't move around. He could get oxygen, but it wouldn't transpose. And so he spent the rest of his life praying and fasting for missionaries all over the world until he died. Uh, David Livingstone, they found him in uh, Tanganyika, kneeling at his bed, dead, praying for Africa. Anybody here remember Ted and Helen McQuinney? Uh, they were living in a care facility and one of his nephews would go by and visit him and he would say, pray that God will give us another year. And he just asked him one day, he said, Uncle Ted, why do you and Helen want to stay around that much when all your loved ones are in heaven? And he took a scrapbook and laid it down and he showed them their grandkids. And he said, I can't pray in heaven. I'm there. And so I want to pray for them. And that's the way you live. You go all the way to the end. Donald Gray, no, not Donald Gray Barnhouse. Harry Ironside said he wanted, when he died, to be skinned and to take his skin and make it into a bass drum and give it to the Salvation Army. How's that for you? That's crazy. That's what that is. They didn't do it, but it's a good wish. Now, I want to show you something in the remaining time we have here. Just turn to your right to Romans chapter 13, where Paul speaks very clearly to the largest church of the day, Romans 13, about the end of time. He tells you that in verse 1 through 7, you're to be a good citizen. 8 through 10, you're to be a good neighbor to your non-believing friends. And the reason you should do this is because, he says, of verse 11. He says, knowing the time, it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. You've got to know who you are. You are awake in a sleeping world. Would y'all say that our world is asleep to the things of God? Tell you what, you go out into a restaurant and say, hey, I'd just like your attention for a moment. I'd like to talk with all of us about original sin, the imminence of death, our judicial state before a holy God, of the Bible, its truth, and the person of Jesus Christ, the prophesied one who came and died for us, that he could declare us righteous, give us new birth, and save us from the lake of fire. Try that and see how it works. They will shout you down. Are those not important things? They're the most important things, but they're asleep. They don't want to hear. Get out of the way. I can't see the the TV. And so we are awake in a sleeping world. Number two, he says in verse 11, it's already the hour for you to awaken. That's what happened when you trusted Christ. God took you like a little baby and you were a living soul in a dead world. We know what's going to happen. And he says in verse 
11, salvation is nearer to us now than when we believe. Salvation meaning our complete salvation from everything that is evil. We're close to the second coming when God's going to take us all home. So we know who we are and we know that what God is going to do, it's getting closer and closer and closer. In verse 12, the night is almost gone and it is. The day is near when Christ will come. Therefore, lay aside the deeds of darkness, put on the armor of light. Behave properly as in the day. As people in the light, we are to live in that light. Why do you not go to certain parts of the city after dark? Because the people in the dark have no accountability. They think nobody can see them. There is no fear of God. We live in that light. We never get to a place where we think I can do what I want because nobody sees me. Joseph, Potiphar's wife said, lie with me. What did Joseph say? How can I do this great sin against God? His wife could have said, well, I don't believe in God. Well, I do. Well, everybody around here doesn't believe in God. Well, I do. And no, ma'am, I will not lie with you. David pulled his stunt with Bathsheba, thought he got away with it. Uriah was dead. He was married. The kid was on the way. Nobody would ask questions. Then it said the thing was evil in the sight of God. So he sees. And so live in that light. We have standards and we have distinctiveness. In verse 12, he says, put on the armor of light. You put on that which gets you ready to fight. Why do you need armor when you're in a dangerous place? My sons go to work every morning and they put on Kevlar. Why? Because there's people out there that would like them dead. Let me ask you, in the world that we're out there, is there someone that would like you dead? Yes. Is there someone who prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour? And so you put on the armor of light because it's scary as to what can happen to you. And we are in a world of darkness and there are captives out there that have been led astray by the devil to do his will. Jesus has come into the strong man's house and bound the strong man, Satan, and now he is plundering his possessions. Who are the possessions? Lost men. And then Jesus said, he that is not with me scatters. He that doesn't gather with me scatters. We are to be gathering with Christ. I am so thankful for that navigator that put on his armor and prayed and knocked on the doors and got a door open and shared with my roommate and I sat behind him and it ricocheted and hit me and I got converted. I am thankful that he was a soul gatherer. And so we mean business when we go out into the world. We're looking for people that God will open their heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And in verse uh, 13, behave properly as in the day. This is a dark world, not for us. They've got their rules. We've got ours. We're the church. Don't fall into verse 13, carousing and drunkenness. You know what the word dissipation means? Uh, do not be filled with wine for that is dissipation. The word dissipation in Greek is spelled A-S-O-T-E-R. 
Soter means to save. Soteriology is the study of salvation. Asoter means unsaved, not saved. If something is not saved, what is it? It is wasted. And that's the word for dissipation. Don't be an asoter. Don't get wasted. Because when a person gets hooked on booze, hooked on pleasure, hooked on drugs, and you look at them, they don't look like body beautifuls, you know? They look like they have been, the Hebrew says, rode hard, put up wet, I believe it is. They're just beat up. Amen. That's why when you come in at 2 a.m., hung over, the next morning you said, boy, was I wasted. I got wasted. Yes, you did. Your life just went the fooey. And so don't do that. Y'all stay out of them bars, okay? And not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality. Responding to innate fallen desires. Don't complicate things by your sexuality. And not in strife and jealousy. Your ability to maintain relationships. So don't you guys be a bunch of drunks a bunch of perverts, and a bunch of unlikable people. Behave properly as in the day. Let me get a little bit philosophic with you. It's been said that up until the 20th century, man was a mimetic individual. You ever heard that word? Mime means to mimic. That we were mimes. We had an objective standard outside of us that we were trying to be. And that was considered excellence, was to conform to an image that was given by God and the Bible. And so, be a good husband, be a good wife, be a good son, be a good soldier, be a good student, be a good neighbor, be a good citizen. All of those goods, be a good boy when you go to school. Mind the teacher and be a good boy. Was that a good way to grow up? Yes, to have a standard of goodness. From the 20th century on, we felt that those things were repressive. Thank you, Mr. Rousseau and Mr. Freud, Mr. Marx, Mr. Darwin, and Mr. Nietzsche, that somehow conforming to what was right was inauthentic. You need to do your own thing. Where have I heard that? If it feels good, do it. You need to stick it to the man and do what you feel. Get your motor running way out on the highway, looking for adventure and whatever comes your way. Like a true nature's child, we were born to be wild. That was the 60s. Weren't we idiots? Yeah. And so that was the deal that rules are oppressive. It goes way back. Did God said, you shall not eat from any tree? You shall not eat it and shall not touch it or you'll surely die. That's a lie. You will not surely die. As a matter of fact, you're going to live. As a matter of fact, the worst thing that ever happened to you was God because he represses you. He knows the day that you do it, you're going to be like him. Get rid of God and live. Sound familiar? Yeah, I heard it on the Canaanite News Network last night. Okay. And so, 
We've gotten rid of mimeticness and we have gone now to the poetic. P-O-E-I-T-I-C, poetic. And Greek means to create, poiesis. So no longer do you mime trying to be a good boy. Now you got rid of the standards. What do you want the standard to be? I am a woman in a male's body. Not really, but I choose to be a woman. I choose to be gay. I choose to be lesbian. I choose to be a they. I choose, are you with me? Where now I get to be God and determine who I am. And so we are a group of people that can't talk to the other group because they have no earthly idea. Are you a boy or are you a girl? Last time I looked, I was a boy. And I'm going to be a boy because that's what God made them, male and female. And so we're standing in this tidal wave of craziness out there. And in verse 13... I'm sorry, verse 14, when they look at you, what should they see? Put on Jesus Christ. Always be able to give a defense for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. They should see the joy of being alive, want to know what it is, and it is Christ. Why is your marriage like it is? Because of Christ. Why is your wife like she is? Because of Christ. Why do you have kids like they are? Because of Christ. The poiesis deal is okay until you get out of the vacuum of a freshman philosophy class. And once you get in the real world, it'll burn up like a cinder when it meets air. No, ultimately, good will triumph. So, and in verse 17, as you go through the world... Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Can you fall at any time? Yes, you can. You guys can end up in porn. You can end up in adultery. You can end up in that which is inappropriate. You women can do all of the same. Can you end up stealing stuff? Can you end up cheating on your income tax? Yes, you can. Do you drive the speed limit? That's not that big a deal. But all the other ones, you need to be real serious about, okay? Can you lose your temper driving and wave at somebody with the Captain Digits finger puppets? Yes, you can. Beware of what you can do. If you got, we had a guy in our church, I'm out of time, but we had a guy in our church Years ago, dear fellow, Al Jacobson started vision ministry. And Al went through rehab. Tracy took him down to the Schick Center. And they put him through rehab. The Schick Center, what they do, and they've said I can share this with you, they give you an injection of a particular chemical. And it reacts with alcohol. And then they bring a big tray of liquor in front of you and say, our treat, and you drink it, and you yak like a monkey in the Fort Worth Zoo for all day. And then they come back the next morning, our treat, no, yes, drink. You drink, and you yak yay again also once more. 
And then you come back every week or so and you have a repeat yakinization. <laughs> and they so train your body that it will have nothing to do with alcohol. And Al told me that after he went through that, he said he could not go to 7-Eleven because they would throw their empties in the bin out there. And he said, I could smell them. And so he said, I'd be going in to get some bluebell and start going, <laughs> and walk off. He said, I could not use shaving lotion. Does it have an alcohol base? He said, I couldn't eat certain olives because the base of it had something fermented in it. And he said, the smell of it would make me recoil. That's the Bible. Don't get anywhere near it. I am so thankful that when I was a child, some nurse dropped me on my head. The part of your brain that works computers or smartphones? <laughs> and after that point, I cannot run a computer machine. I cannot do a smartphone. And so, I am so glad because I have counseled continually with men. What does Ulysses do when you go near the island of the sirens? He sees all these boats dead and destroyed, all these babes on the shore. Say, baby, come on up him. That's what a siren says. <laughs> sirens and uh, he knew I'm dead and so he had all of his buddies put wax in their ears not to hear them tie him to the mast alright because he had to command the ship and he said no matter what I say do not turn me loose because I'm about to lose my mind. There's an old argument that in the Garden of Eden, God gave man a sex drive, and he gave him a brain. And he said, I'm going to give you enough blood to run one of them. <laughs> Does anybody not understand? <laughs> Kendall! I'm done. <laughs> Father in heaven, we thank you for a day in the word, hearing such marvelous music, recognizing our future leaders. God, on our fair island, we are surrounded by children of the dark, by the living, walking dead. And uh, we got to stay safe. For the sake of our children, for the sake of our nation, for the sake of the young coming up. And Lord, our future staff and elders are going to have to speak some things that my generation never had to speak out. And we're going to have to take the hit. And so I pray forever your blessing on these group of people, on Denton Bible Church. The church nobody wanted started by accident. We were a foundling.
And so we are yours. God, when I pray that the rapture occurs, this place would be emptied and people would wander in and wonder where they've been, where'd they go, would find their answers in the Bible. We'll ask it through Christ our Lord. Amen.